Welcome back to the show. You may have noticed we changed our name from what we don't know to Radical Ones. Uh, and that is really because we feel what makes this show so special is the types of folks we bring on. We always try to bring on people close to the problem, people working day in and day out to solve it. We're talking about you know impact entrepreneurs, uh, activists, nonprofit executives, people who really focus on solving these issues. We believe people closest to the problem know best what solutions are needed. We believe that to deeply understand these issues, these are the people that society needs to be hearing from. And we hope that this can become a platform where thousands and hopefully millions of people learn from them. And it starts to inform how our society understands and then leans into solving our largest issues. Uh, and so I'm really proud to call this show Radical Ones because these are radical people discussing radical issues that require radical solutions. Uh, some people lean away from that word. Maybe it makes them a little bit nervous, that, that term radical. Obviously, the right has started to weaponize that term. But I mean, if you look historically at the people called radicals, they have a pretty good track record. <laughs> almost, almost everyone that we universally love now, whether it be MLK or Gandhi or Mandela, were called radicals in their time. And so we believe the people we're bringing on this show will be looked back at in the same type of light. And so that's why we decided to change our name and really kind of lean in to our reverence for the people we're bringing on the show. Welcome back to the podcast formerly known as What We Don't Know, now known as Radical Ones. We have a different name, but we have the same producer. Phineas still in the building. Phineas, who are we chatting with on this episode? Today we have Nick Melvoin, who is the District 4 representative on the Los Angeles Unified School District School Board in California. He is, I believe, the youngest member of the California School Board in history, and his work is effectively to care for the children of Los Angeles via the school system. And it's especially unique during the pandemic, and this was fascinating during the conversation, was how he views schools as a primary access point to these families and how the system can provide support in more ways beyond just education. I had heard about this a few times. People had talked about schools becoming these like community nodes and, and like becoming the lifeline for communities, not just the kids, but their families and even other folks who aren't connected to these schools. And increasingly so during the pandemic, but in general as a as a trend, schools had started to play this outsized role way beyond education. So I was both curious as to what he was seeing, especially in a city like LA that's dealing with so many problems, and specifically through the lens of feeding people during the pandemic. And if there were things we can learn that we should be integrating into our long-term solutions as we emerge out of this pandemic. But it seems to me, uh, and this is what became apparent during the interview, that our politicians, our activists, and, and all of these changemaker forces should be in close allyship with our education systems and our educators if they're not already. Absolutely. So without further ado, let, let's get into the episode. Nick Melvoin, welcome to What We Don't Know. Thank you so much for being here, man. I really appreciate you carving out the time on this Sunday. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So our show 
starts off every time with the question, how would you describe the problem you're solving? So I want to throw that to you. How would you describe the problem you're working on solving? It seems like there are so many. I would say childhood poverty. You know, I serve on the board of the Los Angeles School District, and, you know, we're really in the anti-poverty work. And so right now we're running the largest food bank in the nation. Uh, we're basically an internet service provider for hundreds of thousands of families. We're doing COVID testing. And actually, as of last week, we're vaccinating our community. So, but but I would put it in the lens of California has the highest effective childhood poverty rate in the nation. Um, it's shameful, especially as a progressive state. And so that's that's the line of work I'm in. I have kind of like a design question where it's, I've heard this a lot recently of schools responding particularly to the pandemic is the lens I've heard it through, right? Whether it was like food insecurity or broadband problems, whatnot. Were schools designed for this to be a vehicle to tackle these like broader problems? And, you know, if not, why are they the chosen vehicle right now? Yeah, it's it's the right question because the answer is they weren't, but they've evolved pretty much everywhere in the country to be the social safety net of last resort, right. feeding students. You know, pre-pandemic, we were serving three meals a day in most of our schools, not just lunch, which many people remember, but breakfast right. and supper, we were providing health clinics. And so your question about why, it's because kids are walking through our doors every day. Not right now it's virtual, but soon it will be in person. And we have, I believe, a moral obligation to help them, not just with reading, writing, arithmetic, but if they're hungry, make sure they're fed. If they are they need a jacket, give them a jacket. And uh, if we can help their families, um, we should help their families. And so we're doing it because we have the client, if you will, in students and families. LA Unified, 82% of our kids are living in poverty. And I will say there's been an abdication of other government entities to take care of our kids. You say 80, 82%. 82% of kids in LA's public schools are living in poverty. Wow. And you know what we see when we have lowest per capita housing in the country in California, that affects us because we have over 18,000 homeless students. When we have an immigration system that's failed families, uh, we have more undocumented students and families than anywhere in the country. So we're not designed for it. We've evolved to serve. It's a role I particularly appreciate because, again, in this child poverty lens, but it's one where we need to re be resourced adequately. You know, we get about half as much money per child in L.A. As, as they do in New York, and yet we're doing a lot more than just educating kids. It seems like school is like the one place where there's a not just a touch point, but a continued relationship. It's it's one of the only places that the state has this continued relationship with young people. And therefore, it's kind of the vanguard into, if not solving the issues, waving the flag and saying like, hey, there, there's this hole in our social safety net that we're seeing like a, a mass amount of kids fall through. Exactly. And it, it's so true. We're a conduit. You know, one of the partnerships that I've started in the school district is with legal aid organizations, because they're looking for families to help with you know, wage theft and eviction and immigration, and they have trouble finding clients. And then we have families who come to us and we know that if a, somebody is losing their job or if they're being evicted, that affects their kids because they're now have no place to live. And so we, we put lawyers in communities of schools to help families solve their, solve their problems. So it really is kind of us as the convener, if you will, and kind of the uh, ambassador for a lot of these other services. I, I think I understand now like why schools are well positioned to be this. Do you see, are politicians and other public welfare organizations coming to schools and learning from folks like yourself as frequently as they should be? Or do you feel like that's in the position you sit in, you'd like to bring more, more of that and get more of these leaders to 
engage with the schools more often so they can learn learn quickly and learn how to respond more quickly. We're working on that. And I think the pandemic has highlighted how important schools are to the social safety net, but also the balkanized and fragmented system. So, you know, we we don't get nearly as much money as the county of Los Angeles does for student mental health. But yet this county kids don't go to the county, they go to their school. And so we've been working and actually have some legislation in Sacramento right now to help us get direct funding. So what we've been trying to do is convene the city of Los Angeles, the county and the school district to be more constituent focused, like child focused, as opposed to agency focused. Not as much about, oh, who, which department is getting the funding, but how do we actually solve the problem? And, and many times we know how to solve the problem because those students are walking through our doors. So we're trying to do more to coordinate uh, services. I wanna kind of dive into one of those one of those verticals that you all are being helpful in, which is food insecurity. I think since the pandemic kicked off, we've heard a lot about that. Can you contextualize what what is happening, what you are seeing right now? Yeah, well, like I mentioned, so pre-pandemic, we were serving about a million meals a day, and we were serving not just lunch, but breakfast and supper. And that's because 82% of our families are living in poverty, and we had hundreds of thousands of kids. You know, LA is the second largest district in the country behind New York hundreds of thousands of kids who relied on the school district for meals. Mm. So I only you know, made the decision to close schools in March, knowing that we would still be able to serve this function. So we closed schools on a Friday, and by Wednesday we were running at 60 schools throughout LA, a food distribution center where families could come and pick up you know, not just a lunch, but a few meals for the day. And that has evolved in partnerships with the LA Food Bank, in partnerships with Jose Andres and his World Central Kitchen to feed not only our families, but actually 20% of the people we're feeding are adults who have no connection to the school district. But we made the decision early on, as I I was out there volunteering, that we weren't going to turn people away if they were hungry. So we have served over 110 million meals to folks for free, of course, in LA. And one of my concerns, Ender, as you alluded to, is when when school goes back in session and we're no longer doing this function, there's going to be hundreds of, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds, people who have relied on the school district for meals outside of just the three during the school day. And no one has really picked up the mantle to figure out how we're going to feed our our neighbors. And so that's something we're working on now is once we go back to our function of having schools in person, who's going to pick up the slack to actually feed those folks who have been lining up around schools for a year now to get meals? I mean, this is what the pandemic has been so good at in general is exposing the cruelty of poverty and inequity through a lens that for whatever reason we were able to look at with new eyes, right? The average American seemed like was able to look at it with new eyes and new compassion. What is the system? It is going to be hard to pull that program away from so many people. I I assume it's going to be very politically unpopular too. So hopefully there's some willpower from politicians to not do so. What is the long-term solution in terms of this role that schools are playing in terms of food security in LA? Well, you're right in that the pandemic has brought to the foreground what has always been in the background. And I think in the communities we serve, you know, there's just been this mantra of, well, this is of course a new crisis, but it's one that's just exacerbated existing crises. And it really has made people more aware of the struggles so many of our neighbors face. I think, too, that we're thinking a lot, as people are around the country and the world, about this concept of build back better. You know, and, and you said you've returned to some sense of normalcy. You know, our, our families weren't thriving before the pandemic. And, mm-hmm. you know, what is the new normal? And, and is it that, you know, one of the reasons we were so well positioned 
to do this food bank is because we have the capacity to make meals at a very cheap cost. We've actually, LA has led the nation in actually moving towards more progressive food policies. I was just actually at one of our factories and our partners this week to whether it's non-GMO chicken or ensuring that the companies we work with pay a living wage. We were already positioned to produce these meals. And one of the things I'm talking to the city and the county about is what if we continue the economies of scale here, we can still do that. You just reimburse us and we'll continue to help feed the community. Mm. The, the most frustrating part of what we've done in the last year is we have not gotten a dollar from the city, the county, or the state, even though we've been feeding adults who have no connection to the school district. And their response, quite candidly, has been, no one asked you to do that, which is mind boggling because here we are in a pandemic and we're providing meals for people who are hungry. And are the people who should be doing that and who are getting the FEMA dollars to do it, the city and the county are saying, well, we never asked you to do it, so we don't owe you anything. Which is still, you know, I think such a maybe like a pre-pandemic mentality of balkanization. And so my hope would be that we do work out some sort of partnership where if we're going to be producing, again, a million meals a day in non-pandemic times, let's make it 1.2 and we can have folks take meals home for their families, or we can have people come and pick up at some of our distribution centers. So, right. uh, and it's the same with with you know COVID testing and now vaccinations, which is that we're, you know, right now in, in LA and in California, the, the problem is supply, but then it's going to be equity and access. And we keep saying we have schools in every community; they're great hubs to not, you know, we're not only using the food centers to distribute food; we've been distributing toys, clothing, feminine products, sports equipment. We're using this network to just get supplies to families, and it's something I hope will last post-COVID. It sounds pretty... I hadn't heard of districts offering three meals a day. That seems pretty unique. I'm not an expert in the space. Is it? It is, and actually, it, it's growing. LA was leading on this. I mean, we've always had lunch, and then we started a pretty innovative program about eight or nine years ago called Breakfast in the Classroom. When I was, I was a teacher in Watts, and one of the things that was challenging about, we had breakfast for kids who needed it, but there was such a stigma around showing up hungry or showing up and having to get right. your breakfast. And so one of the things we did is we switched the food program kind of from an opt-in to an opt-out. And we serve now, you know, again, pre-pandemic and again, post-pandemic, every school day starts with kids in their like homeroom eating breakfast so as not to stigmatize kids who have to go to the lunch counter. Cool. So we do a breakfast in the classroom program, we do lunch, and then we do supper. One of the, the fights I was having with the USDA before COVID is that there's a what's called the congregant meal requirement, which is that students have to eat on campus. They have to eat in groups. And obviously that's been waived with COVID, but I was really trying to find a way for kids to be able to take their supper you know, quote unquote supper, it's like at 4 p.m. when the school day ends, home with them. Right. And federal law prohibits it. But, you know, to me, it's, again, one of those kind of antiquated bureaucratic regulations where if a kid, at four o'clock, a lot of kids are like, I'm not hungry. I just had lunch and I don't. But they're going to be hungry in a few hours. And yet we weren't legally allowed to let kids take their meals home with them. And I hope that this year has made us rethink some of those antiquated rules. Has it been? I imagine it's been harder in some ways to track food security with the kids not being to your points like you they you could literally watch them have breakfast in the classroom yeah How, how's it been trying to manage this during the pandemic and, and ensuring everyone's accounted for and showing up and getting what they need yeah well it's, it's kind of what you were saying before i think a lot about you know maslow's hierarchy of needs and like the first thing we made sure we did when we closed schools was made the food safety net but then like the next week was internet 
Uh, and I, you know, I think it's prescient what you were saying about maybe in this digital age. Can I, I do believe that access to the internet should be a right, totally. not a privilege. And so we have given out hundreds of thousands of computers, iPads, and hotspots, over a hundred thousand hotspots to families, so that they could connect. And that's been helping us track, you know, not just whether a student's logging into class, but are they getting what they need. We still have a few thousand kids for whom connectivity is a challenge. We're actually starting a pilot program at my request to just subsidize broadband for families. So we've been give, we gave them a hotspot, which we're of course paying for, but you know, in dead zones or if there are a lot of kids logging on, and so we're basically just paying for we're going to start paying for spectrum. You know, I think that's been the challenge, and there are kids who haven't been connecting, who've only been connecting, you know, rather infrequently, and and it, it's. Again, not only just about they're not getting their education, but how do we make sure that they're getting fed and that they're getting their free glasses? You know, we've given tens of thousands of free glasses to kids uh, and stuff like that. That that strikes me. The the broadband uh, issue strikes me as like a, such a good example of schools being the vanguard for just flagging something that should be taken upon, like the solution should be taken upon by like the city, right? Like Los Angeles yeah. to just consider... <laughs> making the entire place, you know, uh, have, you know, free internet. You should, you should uh, read my resolution uh, that was for the board, because that's exactly what we said, which is like, in the short term, we're part of the solution here. But in the long term, we need a count, a city, a county or a statewide solution. And, you know, I think it's frankly, kind of embarrassing for a place like LA that you have like Chattanooga, Tennessee, that has public fiber and public broadband. And yet LA, totally. like, you know, media capital of the world, um, and it's the school districts that's paying for internet for families. So I, I hope this will be a wake-up call to my colleagues in, in city government. You all are able to produce and distribute food at a super reasonable price because of this infrastructure you've built. Is this ability unique to LA in your specific geography, or is this replicable? Is this more like you can get other districts to be able to take this on? So I didn't know, you know, Central California is so great at producing food. I didn't know if there was something about that location that also allows you to ship it in cheaper or whatnot, or is this replicable and other school districts can also be doing this? It's, it is replicable. I mean, you're right that we're in, you know, the proximity to the breadbasket, but you know, this is why it is a, a kind of federal program because it's the federal subsidies that are helping all school districts. And I think producing meals cheaply, being able to find families in need is, uh, you know, a unique function of, of the school districts. And so I'd like, you know, and, and to be fair to them, I know New York and others are, you know, lo most school districts that closed are finding ways to feed their population. I think we're doing it particularly innovatively, but this is scalable throughout the country. Say you're able to do it and do so, right? Like you're, you're able to advocate for the system 10 years from now, you're as successful as possible in, you know, at least advocating for the learnings that you've taken in over the last year on the food security front and distribute it. What is true about the world in 10 years if you're as successful as possible in this front? That no kid would be hungry. Um, and, and if we're as successful as I'd like us to be, no, no adult would be hungry. And, you know, I, I think back to my days teaching middle school in Watts and kids who showed up and they were tired or they were off the walls. And for so long, we would look at those kids and say, oh, it's because of where they come from or they don't care. And, you know, I found out very early on that a kid who hasn't had a meal in two days they're not going to care about what I'm trying to teach them. A kid who's only had sugar in the morning is not going to be able to sit still. And so, so much of this is connected to learning. So I would say that, you know, the world, no kid would be hungry. And a byproduct of that 
would be, we'll start to see outcomes improve and kids being more successful in school because to your point earlier, their basic needs will have been met in a way that we weren't always doing before the pandemic. We're in such a unique point in history in terms of our production capacity. Like the suffering we have today is so different than suffering from a hundred years ago. And then it is so easy for us to produce everything we need. And I think that the anger, some of what's underlying the anger of so many people right now is walking by places filled with foods or empty apartments and like understanding that as a species, we don't have this production problem anymore. And yet we're like, it's almost to a point now where it's like we're dogs where it's like, you got to sit and roll over to get your treat instead of it actually being a production problem. And, um, I hope you're successful in this specific vertical. And I hope we have like a reckoning around just like understanding that we are no longer a uh, species that struggles with production capabilities. And a lot of the incentives before around having to work and go buy your own food were because we, we need everyone participating for the whole to be able to survive, right? It was a different game than it is today. Well, and I think too, I mean, you know, I open with this, but it should give us all significant shame that in the richest state, in the richest country in the history of the world. We have the highest effective childhood poverty rate, the lowest per capita housing rate, some of the worst funded and worst performing public schools. Because to your point, I mean, you know, it would be one thing if we, we knew we weren't able to do it, but you look down the street at the independent school, the private school, Beverly Hills School District, you know, the Amazon warehouse, you know, down the block, and you know that it's there. It's there. And so it, it's, your, it's not about production. It's not about supply. It's about it's about access and it's about equity. And that's why there's there's a righteousness in this anger that people are feeling because, you know, I, I'm a progressive because I believe in the power of government to help people. And you look around and you're like, is the government helping people? And uh, if not, why not? And those are the questions that have been long overdue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think that's like that simple equation of like, we have enough and there's still folks that don't have anything is like, as long as that remains untrue, we need to we need to keep kicking the tires and making sure we solve that equation. I really appreciate the ways in which you're doing it. You're doing it effectively. You're helping people at scale. So I really appreciate that. I wrap this thing up always with quick hitters and then I give you the floor. So you ready for three quick questions, like maybe a sentence. And then uh, I'm going to hand the floor over to you. All right, brother? Sounds like a plan. What's the most impactful thing you've read lately? Ooh, that's a great question. I'm reading actually, you know, one of my favorite professors in law school was Brian Stevenson, who runs the Equal Justice Initiative. Mm -hmm. and, and he recommended two books at the end of his podcast that he did with Ezra Klein. One is Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. And the other is The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, which I never read. And it feels a little like I'm back in high school because I'm like slogging through this this Russian literature, but I think there are a lot. Of, there are a lot of themes there about justice and redemption, uh, and so I'm I'm halfway through that. I'll also say I'm listening on tape to um, Obama's memoir uh, and having him read it to me like every night. You know, it just feels like you know I do feel that sense of hope and you know and, and the audacity of hope. So I would say those those three are things that are sustaining me right now. But who's a change maker that you've been inspired by recently? You know, I'm going to say the student leaders of LA. I helped lead the board to disinvest from the school police and put more money to black students. And it was really led by a group of black and Latino and student leaders who were just speaking with such moral clarity at this time. And so you know, I don't have one name in particular, but this group of students who led this school board, they not only inspired me, but moved me and moved the board uh, in this better direction. Fantastic, man. Well, that that's it from my end. I want to give you the floor before we wrap this thing up. You can you share anything you'd like to share. Well, I appreciate the time. And, you know, I think um, what I am trying to encourage folks to do right now is 
two things. One is just, you know, appreciate the, the role that school districts are having. I think we're always quick to uh, gang up on, on teachers and schools and not doing enough, but we're trying to, you know, do a lot as the social safety net of last resort and also get invested locally. You know, I think I'm sure a lot of listeners know exactly what's happening in the Senate right now, but couldn't tell you who your local city council member is, your school board member, your state legislator. And yet these are the people who are making decisions that affect your quality of life, schools, criminal justice, housing policy, zoning, so many things that are holding back progressive causes. So if you don't know who your local elected officials are, look them up right now, make sure you vote in every election and hold those people accountable because uh, not only are they, again, making these important decisions that affect your life, but this is the bench. You know, the school board members, the city council members of today in a few years will be your congressional and senatorial candidates. And I actually think the right and Republicans are much better at growing their bench than we are on the left. And so, you know, I just get involved locally, get to know who's electing you. And if you support them, throw them some of your volunteer time. And if you don't support them, work hard or run for office yourself, especially, you know, our women, our people of color, folks who have been historically underrepresented. I'm always encouraging folks to run for office and uh, please reach out to me anytime if I can be helpful, kind of running somebody through the ropes of how to how to set up a campaign, run for school board, run for neighborhood council, run for whatever it is, but run for something. I'll co-sign every word of that. Nick Melvoin, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and, and uh, sharing your wisdom and your work. It was a pleasure. Thanks for um, giving me an opportunity to share what we're doing in LA. Thank you for listening to Radical Ones. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Radical Ones. You can also follow us on social at Radical Ones Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.